Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Hello and welcome to Transporter Lock, episode number 56 for Star Trek Picard, season one, episode nine, at an Arcadia Ego. I'm your co-host, Chief Engineer Ken Gagney. And I am Captain Sabriel Maston. And joining us today, all the way from the Federation Diplomatic Corps, is Ambassador Josh. Hello, Josh. Hello and greetings. Greetings to you. Thank you for joining us on Transporter Lock. It is my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're a long-time listener, first-time caller, I understand. Is that correct? <laughs> That's exactly right. It's the first time that I ha- I've hailed you, and uh, I'm looking forward to a very interesting conversation. <laughs> As are we. So tell us a little bit about yourselves, Josh. How do you know Star Trek? How long have you been a fan, if at all? You know, I was thinking about this a few moments ago, and I can barely remember a time when I've not been a fan of Star Trek. I think Star Trek was one of the first things I watched on television, um, that being Star Trek The Next Generation. So you can imagine my excitement when I learned about the, the launch of uh, of Picard. And uh, in in the UK, which is from where I hail, um, Star Trek was broadcast just once a week on BBC Two at 6pm on a Wednesday. And that used to be the time that I would absolutely obsess about turning on the television and making sure I got to watch The Next Generation. Um, and it's kind of interesting because I don't think I fully understood everything I was watching, but I was completely obsessed by it. Um, it was something I absolutely had to watch every week, week in, week out. And that was something that that continued through uh, the next generation, through Deep Space Nine, um, uh, and of course Voyager, um, and even Enterprise. Um, I, I've I've watched them all. Um, so yeah, my my history with Star Trek goes goes back somewhere. It goes back to some of my my earliest memories. It feels like, um, and it's remarkable coming back to it again now with the magic of streaming meaning I can go back and rewatch absolutely everything uh, with a kind of adult mindset. Oh, absolutely. I, I had a similar thing. I, I watched Star Trek when I was younger, and then I'm rewatching it when I'm older. Like, wow, this, I didn't know it at the time, but this went way over my head. <laughs> yeah. And it was just so good. I mean, like you, you, as a young person, you, you, you're kind of drawn in by the stories and the images and the kind of wonder that is represented by, by the next generation in particular when I was so young. And then as an adult, you're drawn in by the acting and the interplay and the relationships and the, and it's, it, it also let me reflect on what I felt like when I was younger, because one of the characters that I think I empathize most, most with was, of course, Commander Data, someone who had this kind of wonder about the world, but was also quite naive and perhaps didn't quite fit in perfectly to the world around him, um, but was someone also who, who was deeply respected by the people he lived and, and worked with every day. Um, and I think it was only really as an adult when I completely rewatched The Next Generation um, in, in glorious high definition that I really, that, that connection really clicked for me again. Um, so it's been, it's been quite a journey coming to Picard um, and seeing that sort of from, from, I guess, as broadcast now, you're from the very, very, very start. Would you say that TNG is, is your favorite Star Trek? Now, this is a difficult question. <laughs> uh, it always is. Because I, I did love Next Generation. I always considered, I think, I think I considered 
the next generation my I, you know something i really loved and and picard as as a very important captain for me um but very recently i rewatched the whole of deep space 9 and my word is that a a dark series when you rewatch oh, yeah. it with especially with today's context in the context of 2019 2020 um and I think that that is currently in the lead for my favorite Star Trek. But um, hey, we're only on season one of Picard, so um, hopefully there's another six seasons to go, right? If we go by <laughs> previous. Yeah, I mean, TNG, DS9, Voyager, but not Enterprise, all ran for seven seasons, and we know that we're getting a second season of Picard, so odds are looking good. Let's hope. <laughs> and you have quite the extensive knowledge of the expanded universe as well. Um, so I've been playing Star Trek Online for about 10 years, and uh, you may be aware that Star Trek Online recently celebrated, actually, its 10th anniversary. Um, so that's been quite a journey for me, because uh, when, I, when I started playing Star Trek Online, and it was me and a couple of friends who, who started at the same time, for us, this was Star Trek. You know, there was no more Star Trek in the Prime Universe. Um, you know, we'd had the Star Trek 2009 reboots. The assumption was, right, the Prime Universe is now clear. You've got a CBS-blessed um, uh, sort of you know, MMORPG to play, and this is what Star Trek is now. And we can finally do what we always wanted to do, which is to captain our own starships. <laughs> um, so I've been playing that for some time, and it's been really wonderful to see how Star Trek Online has grown, evolved, and expanded, and has also been influenced by um, the developments, for example, in Discovery, um, and more recently, developments in Picard. And I'm always looking out for elements in Picard and Discovery which Star Trek Online may have influenced back. Um, still not sure I found any as yet, but I'd like to imagine that um, Star Trek Online, in one sense, being a sort of canoni- well, semi-canonical expanded universe, um, uh, reflects back uh, into the stories we see on screen. Yeah, Star Trek and even to a degree Star Wars have a rich history of drawing on these non-canonical sources, whether it's an animated TV show or the novels, where they don't have to make them canon, but they choose to, and the fans just go wild over it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and it's been really nice seeing um, the Star Trek online 10th anniversary episodes, 10th anniversary series, um, actually featuring Seven of Nine in her Picard um, outfits and her Picard um, tones. That's been really amazing. Um, and I won't give too much away, but uh, it is quite an epic 10th anniversary uh, <laughs> with aspects from the entire um, Star Trek uh published universe which i think um has been a fantastic job um done by the star trek online team i've seen some promotional images and it's pretty cool Mm -hmm. nice Uh, josh i guess in the interest of full disclosure to our listeners we should also perhaps acknowledge that we are co-workers we are indeed um (laughs) we we are indeed co-workers and um it's been wonderful to work for an organization um that where we have where we have so many star trek fans um and to actually be able to talk about star trek with my co-workers um on a kind of day-to-day basis if i wanted to do so um whereas previously i worked in much smaller organizations uh where perhaps i was the only outlier so um yeah, it's wonderful to, to have this opportunity to, to do so uh, on your on uh, on this podcast. Yeah, I, I enjoy the community we have both in Slack at work and here on the podcast, and I love it that they're intersecting today. So why don't we go ahead and talk about Et and Arcadia 
ego. And we can pick apart the meaning of that title at the end of this episode, but we usually start with the TLDR. We're going to skip that this week because you've probably watched the show by now. This is the episode where La Serena finally arrives at Copelius, which is the homeworld of the synths, and hilarity ensues. <laughs> hilarity? <laughs> Well, perhaps not hilarity. Maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit. I laughed a few times, like when uh, Rios yells a mother effer in Spanish (laughs) uh, when they're being attacked Uh, by the Romulans. Oh, I didn't... I see, having no knowledge of the Spanish language, I did not recognize that, so... (laughs) But yeah, this episode starts with a dogfight over the homeworld, and we see a lot of elements show up very quickly. Some of them new, some of them unexpected. Uh, Josh, what were some of your impressions or reactions during that opening dogfight? Well, this this was quite a way to open an episode, wasn't it? Um, it was it was very visual. It was um, very exciting. Um, I think one of the, one of the things that I I picked out about the dogfight. Um, was just actually that this level of action is something that um, Picard does really well. Um, we don't have to rely on Picard as a kind of action hero when we can use um, the, the, the spaceships and and um, the space fights in order to represent some of that. Thanks to like CGI and whatnot has developed since TNG. Like We no longer have to have the capital ships just floating there in space, mm-hmm. shooting random lights at each other. Now, ever since like Enterprise and on, you can actually see like dynamic or even a little bit of uh, deep space nine dynamic space battles which is really cool especially when you have such an old actor like picard in there absolutely and i love the fact that for example when when people call out for evasive action or they call out for maneuvers it's not simply a large ship moving slightly to the left <laughs> which, is sort of <laughs> which is what we used to see in in the next generation you know you'd see uh you see the enterprise d sort of move slightly to the left or slightly to the right and take evasive action <laughs> Uh, you can actually see the ships flip. You can, you can see them dodge. You can see them. Uh, you can see the, the stress on the on on the. Ship. It's 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 what we expect in 2020, uh, and it delivers really well. And I think for me that that moment when you see the the Borg cube emerge yes. from the uh, from the wormhole, that was one of the iconic moments I think of this episode or the opening of the episode. Yeah, we definitely have much faster action now. It was midway through DS9 that they switched from physical models to CGI, and we saw the benefits of some of that during the Dominion War. But even in this episode, things are moving faster than even that. Like, when Narek's Romulan scout ship comes out of the transwarp conduit, we immediately see the La Serena take evasive action. They don't sit there, wait to get hit, and then ask themselves, what was that? Where did that come from? Because that's what we would have seen in previous Star Trek. Oh, for sure. And also in previous Star Treks, being on Federation ships, you know, you, you wouldn't expect a, a Federation or a Starfleet ship to, to, to make the first shot, would you? You'd expect them, expect them to be shot at before they uh, they reacted. So it's very interesting that, you know, now with um, a non-Federation ship, a non-Starfleet ship, but uh, I guess Starfleet trained crew, they actually have the freedom now to to go ahead and, and, and shoot before asking too many questions. Uh, when the board came, cube came out. Oh, it's such a cool moment, but it was over so quickly. Yes. Uh, when that when that square peg came out of that round hole, I jumped out of my seat. I was so... I mean, just like Rio said, that's unexpected. I did not see that coming so soon. I mean, in last week's Transporter Lock, I suspected the board cube would arrive at the planet, but not like that and not at that moment. But you're right. This is now twice that we've seen Seven of Nine take command of the board cube 
and really do nothing with it. I mean, when she was the queen, she commanded a few drones to attack Narissa, and that was it. And now she shows up at the homeworld and is immediately landed on the planet against her will. And yeah, there could have been so much more done there. Right, right. I, that, that's a great point. And I think it's it's a shame, really, because we want to see more with this cube. What can it do? Why is it, you know, why why has it been severed from the collective? And I think there's there's some discussion about that, uh, you know, with regards to assimilating uh, Ajat Vash uh, in the, you know, in, in its past history. But um, it, it feels like a really missed opportunity to me because to see the Borg in action, see a Borg cube in action again one more time, maybe. Um, and I, I imagined the Borg cube might come in to, to save the day from the Romulans attacking Capellius, but it sounds like, it looks like so far, that's not necessarily going to happen, at least not in the um, way we might have expected. Jumping into the scene, we actually skipped one. What, the seatbelts? Yeah, well, this is a, <laughs> there's a small character moment here. It opens with Gerardi in our quarters, panicking underneath the desk while the ship was rocking and shaking in the transwarp hub. Well, and then it cuts to the rest of the crew. Rios is sitting there with a grin as he's flying his ship, like, yeah, this is amazing. Ravi's happy. Uh, it was a huge smile on uh, Soji's face, and Picard is just staring there out into space, but I almost feel like there's, there's a little hint that he's not feeling well. That's a really good point, um, because I, I certainly remember um, the reactions of the other crew, but I completely missed uh, the look, or maybe even the lack of look, on Picard's face. Yeah, he's um, just staring blankly forward. Uh, I, and I did love how Rios was just absolutely adoring the moment with the... I think he had a cigar in his mouth as well, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. Huh. You know, I, m- maybe I misinterpreted Picard's blank expression. I thought it was a look of awe, like he just couldn't believe he was going through a transwarp conduit, possibly for the first time in his life. It's possible. It's very possible. It uh, is indeed. My, my viewing there was like, well, this is like the second viewing, like, or even just now thinking, like, I'm, I had a similar reaction there and also th- started thinking now as we're talking, like, maybe this is also a sign of what's to come. Maybe... You know, this transwarp hub is hitting him harder uh, than normal space travel. That's a, that's really interesting, especially given his, how he seems to still be struggling with his uh, previous assimilation, uh, which again is kind of, you know, uh, mentioned uh, later in the episode by one of the XPs. <laughs> right. Yeah, and we do want to talk a lot more about neurological disorder, but there are some other things on the way there I also want to mention, like the orchids that just showed up. (laughs) Very TOS feeling. (laughs) Yeah, very space flowers. I mean, I think, Sabriel, you and I probably picked up, and probably Josh as well, immediately that these are the orchids that Dodge remembers from her childhood. Right, they are, aren't they? And that's that's a wonderful way to to link that through um, throughout the entire series, because... um, the orchids were one of the first things we saw about uh, about Darji, Darja's um, quarters, didn't we? Because she yep. had uh, orchids in her quarters, if I recall. Yes, I do. And I think I remember that just before Darj was attacked by the mysterious uh, the mysterious people, the stamens or the sort of little bits inside the orchids withered away. Um, and it's really, and it's a really interesting kind of callback to see this theme of orchids throughout Picard right up until this episode. I'm very interested to see what happens with the orchids in the next episode. 
I found it interesting that neither the La Serena or the Romulan scout ship or the Borg cube, as far as we saw, made no attempt to either attack or evade the orchids. They, uh, especially the La Serena, just seemed to sit still while it allowed itself to be enveloped. Yeah, the action made it seem like those flowers were moving much faster than they looked like they were on screen. Uh, just the pacing, like, uh, they're in the middle of a fight. Oh, hey, there's flowers. Oh, they're on top of us. Like, <laughs> like uh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, and that was kind of interesting, wasn't it? Because as soon as the flowers got on top of the ships, all their power went away. But there didn't seem to be any panic about, hey, we have zero power, therefore there's no life support. You know, what's happening next? Surely that would have raised some kind of alarm bells, but uh, they kind of seemed to go with it, which I thought was a little bit unusual. Did it seem plausible to either of you that these orchids were powerful enough to take down an entire board cube? Oh, I mean, I mean, I had no basis of comparison. I haven't seen space flowers in action much, so I was like, I was just like, <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> yeah, I and I, I wasn't entirely sure whether the space flowers, the orchids, had brought down the ball cube in a controlled fashion, or whether they'd brought them down and actually the ball cube had kind of overwhelmed them. Uh, I, I didn't quite pick that up from my my watches of the episode, and it'd be interesting to get your take on whether the ball cube is in any way salvageable as a spacecraft. Uh, two things there. One to actually ask the question that Ken asked. Like, when the flowers took, when I saw the flowers take down the board cube, I was like, wow, these things are powerful. Uh, that was my actual reaction. Like, wow, they could take down a cube. And, but, um, in the episode, they, Rios mentions, like, I don't think those flowers were meant to take down something as big as a board cube. And the way it was just kind of just dropped and thrown into the planet. I don't think, um, yeah, I, I don't think it was any kind of guided flight. Uh, they mentioned like it hit hard. That's a good point because I I wasn't clear whether it was like a guided guided flight as you as you put it, um, whether they were actually guiding La Serena down, knowing who was on board, uh, or whether it was a defensive mechanism. Uh, and it sounds like based on on that discussion that it's probably more towards the latter, a defensive mechanism. Yeah, my first viewing of the episode, I thought the flowers were specifically there to land a ship. Mm -hmm. And upon the second viewing, it does seem more defensive. I don't think they were particularly concerned about survivors. No, uh, the, the La Serena definitely was like, looked like it had uh, skidded a bit when it hit the ground to where it was at. Um, so I don't think, I mean, even if they are meant to just bring someone down defensively, it may not be the softest of landings, no matter who you are, let alone a board cube. But surely now that we know that Soji has Wi-Fi, they detect <laughs> a, a board La Serena. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we talk about the scene in the medical bay once they land? That's where we find Dr. Agnes Durati has done a medical scan with an old school medical tricorder on Picard and finds out that he may have some sort of a neurological condition, which he confirms, and then he reveals to the entire crew, which he hasn't before. And I was really touched by how moved Agnes was by this revelation, that quiet moment between the two of them in the medical bay, because they really haven't known each other all that long, not like Picard and Raffi have, but Agnes is nonetheless really sad to find this out about her captain. Agnes has quickly taken the people to say like her crew. She mentioned it last week. She blew it. But she's, I mean, even aside from her romantic interest in Rio, she's gotten close to these people in a short time. And to see her lower mouth quiver there uh, when he's confirming this, that was really heartbreaking. And then like, through the whole episode, everyone was giving him, uh, was tearing up and giving him sad goodbyes. 
that was uh, that was absolutely a, a powerful moment for me. Um, Agnes has been through so much in such a short space of time. You know, being take ripped out of a kind of you know the lab environment, a very sedate environment back in on the in the, the Daystrom Institute in Okinawa. Suddenly, she's in space battles. She's in transwarp conduits. She's um, you know being being attacked. Um, so it's not too surprising, perhaps, that she's bonded with the people around her, uh, with whom she has has shared so many experiences. And I, I suppose Picard is someone that she seems to trust uh, innately, and perhaps also is a link back to to Bruce Maddox being you know the, being the person that uh, encouraged her to to join the mission. So yeah it's and it's 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 strange like watching everyone's attitudes change so completely well not completely but so subtly and so obviously at the same time if you know what i mean um it's, yeah. it's subtle changes but you can see they're happening if that if is what i'm trying to get at yeah with agnes it was just a few weeks ago when picard was on the board cube meeting soji for the first time that agnes said let's just go home you know, why, why do we have to follow them? And she was willing at that moment to be entirely separated from half of her crew, you know, Elnor and Picard. And now we see her much closer. And that feels like a natural progression because she's starting to get over the poison of the admonition. She has confessed her sin about Bruce Maddox, and she's starting to recognize what a great crew she has. And we really see that connection in this episode. It feels like of all of them, she's probably been on the most, dramatic journey yeah um from you know from kind of uh lab scientist doing things uh in, in theory to suddenly being um being put through all these terribly stressful experiences acting as a as a double agent um right through to you know what we see happening happening later in the episode um finding what she's always sought i really think season two of the show should be renamed star trek agnes <laughs> you want her of each season? <laughs> well, maybe a maybe a spinoff. I mean, we have five dozen other Star Trek shows in the works. What's one more? <laughs> no, maybe uh, not. But with everyone finding out this news here uh, so late, like Picard clearly didn't tell them, and uh, pretty starting to get the word out whether he intends to or not. Like Eleanor, when he found out, or when they're departing later on, he's like, "I may never see you again." And Picard. Just He's really sad, and he's trying to tell Picard's trying to tell him like that's true of any two people who say goodbye. It's like it's just a fact of life. But you can see, Honor is hurting so much. Seven, she's tearing up, uh, and sh- and so she is either there is a past here that we are unaware of, uh, which I don't think so. But just the respect that she holds for Picard and their shared experiences with the Borg, uh, she's already that close. And to see Seven tearing up is something we really didn't see much of in Voyager. Yeah, I think you're right that they don't have a shared history. I think that would have come up by now. But as you said, they're shared experiences. They're similar experiences. And also just the renown that Picard has. I mean, how many amazing things has he done for this galaxy, for Starfleet? And Seven of Nine knows all that. I mean, he's a legend. And anytime you lose a legend, whether it's Captain Picard or Kenny Rogers, even if you've never met them before, you get teary. She says, get out there and save the galaxy. And he says, no, it's your turn. Yeah, that's all up to you now. You know, because she's going to be around longer than he is. So. It's it's almost like it's building up to a bit of a goodbye for Picard. 
uh, which doesn't quite make sense given we are watching Star Trek Picard. <laughs> but um, you know, I who suspect it's probably. Be? Yeah. Who knows what season two? I bet you that's one of the reasons why he signed on. He like I want to be able to give a send off to this character. And I think we have some ideas of, of, that were hinted at in this episode, which we will get to. But yeah, I think uh, this it might be the last time Picard and Seven cross paths for a while. And after they leave the Borg cube, they finally arrive in the settlement of the Synths, and they finally get to meet all these twin androids that they've been talking about for the entire season. And that's just a wonderful moment for me, actually, to see these synths who remind me so much of, of Data. You have you know, the golden skin. You have, of course, the yellow eyes. Um, you have uh, the, the head movements. You have the childlike wonder. Um, for me, that that's quite, that's quite a moment. Um, you have the evil twin. <laughs> oh, that's true. I hadn't thought of it that way. Just like Data yeah. and Lore. I think Suture is the Lore to Soji. That is an excellent observation. I hadn't made that connection. Uh, for a bit there, I don't know if it's true. For a bit there, I thought that um, Alton Soon, which we find out Doctor Soon had another ki- had a kid, an actual uh, biological kid, uh, not synthetic. Um, but anyway, he. Uh, I was wondering if this was actually Lore for a bit there. I don't, oh. think, I don't think he is, but. I can't 100% rule it out. Now that's well, that... an interesting theory, isn't it? Is this in fact Law pretending to be Nunyan Soong's offspring, Valor's offspring? Well, that was certainly explained the retcon of all of a sudden Soon had a biological son that we never knew about. But at the same time, I mean, Lore was defeated in descent. And as far as we know, I mean, you're right. We haven't seen his body since that episode, but we haven't heard that he escaped or was reactivated either. It could be one of those <gasps> shock moments. I mean, <laughs> it's really, who knows? I mean, if, if they would have told us that years ago or like episodes ago, then like, oh, everyone would be like, yeah, this is definitely lower. So what would be his uh, long-term game plan here, do you think? Uh, if it is him, which I, again, don't believe it is, but I can't 100% rule it out. Uh, try to get information on this signal. Oh, oh, you're right, because he wanted to use the crystalline entity to destroy all humanity. Now he wants to use the admonition. Oh, that is consistent. I like it. <laughs> Picard has a line when he's when they meet. He says, I feel as if I'm looking at data. And then Alton makes a comment, a little snarky comment. I don't want to say snarky, but makes a quick little jab back. It says, data, if he'd gotten old and gone soft. Like, that was very a lore-like line. <laughs> Yeah, that that, oh, that, that's was, that was that was a, a great line actually, um, because it immediately identified this person as almost certainly not an android, but also an android of the type of law who's you know just a little bit more um, snarky, just a little bit more devious, um, has a little um, plan in the back of his pocket. Um, I think this is this is a really interesting interesting and fun theory. I, I'm not I don't know how it will pan out. I don't know. Um, if it will go down that path, because it, it does sound like Law and some of the other androids have effectively been written out of uh, of, of this this part of, of Star Trek, uh, which I think is a shame personally, because the whole Data and Law thing, being brothers and being opposites, plays perfectly into the story of hey, there need to be two, and they're going to be um, opposites, or they're going to have opposite elements to their personality. 
Oh, oh, you just that's right. You know, Sabriel mentioned the four queens and the king, and we've seen the two twins played by the same actor who plays Soji and Daj. And now the king, if all five cards represent androids, would be lore. Yeah, you got me to uh you beat you beat me to my notes here. Uh <laughs> so we've I didn't seen even- I didn't even read your notes. No, you didn't. Uh, we've seen uh, four. I, I wrote so- four Soji-type androids so far. Where's the fifth? And is the fifth the one in the painting? And we've seen this king. Wait, the one in the painting? I thought that was Dodge. We assume. But there's there are quint- quadruplets or quintuplets? Well, I mean, we know, well, four of them, if there are four queens and one king, then that would re- No, but the suggest- cards had five queens. Oh, he had five queens? Yeah. Oh, I don't remember that. Okay. Interesting. Hmm. Five queens. You know, I I finally learned from past errors, and what I've started doing is I never skip the opening sequence, because I just love the medley and the uh, art set pieces that they put together, but I've averted my eyes from the words that appear on the screen. So I don't know who the guest stars are because that is always a spoiler for me. So I had no idea that Jerry Ryan would be in it, although that wasn't too much of a surprise, but especially Brent Spiner when he first shows up in the background and he's saying, excuse me, pardon me. And he's kind of blurred out, but I hear that voice and I was like, no, it can't be. (laughs) Like I said that out loud. And once he finally shows up, my mind is just blank because I have no idea how they're going to explain this person or who this person even is. And when they finally said it was Nguyen Soong's son, I was like, oh, that's kind of a cop-out in my opinion. But... Yeah, that was... Um, that's a really good strategy, Ken. I think I might have to try that and not look at the special guest stars because it does give too much away um, in terms of who might be in the episode. And that moment of like of calling him Nguyen Soong's son i thought was really interesting because it harks it sort of calls back to what they did in enterprise um when you had dr arik soong who was presumably the grandfather maybe great grandfather of noonian soong experimenting um with the um superhumans whose name i've completely augments the augments that's it um, and that little storyline that was a great way to to see Brent Spiner again, um, mm-hmm. and to to keep the the Soong story going in Enterprise. So it's kind of an interesting callback to that, an interesting way of saying, well, you know, his grandfather looked or great grandfather looked looked like that, and he looked like that. So I'm going to look like that as well. <laughs> well, also, you know what? You you just reminded me. Well of a couple of things. One is how believable is it <laughs> that so many male representatives in this family, so many generations, look exactly the same. I mean, those are some very dominant genes. Maybe they're all and, clones. Oh, and also, when he, uh, when Alton Soong said, yes, my father made Data, but he had me, and he said, like, he never let me forget that he made Data, that sounds like something a jealous sibling would say, which That's is something Lore would say. A very Lore line. It feels like actually he did say things like that. One other android I want to mention in this scene was Arcana who stuck struck out at me, or she stood out to me for a couple of reasons. One is the name Arcana, when we previously saw the Romulan Tarot. I mean, that, that seems a coincidence. I don't see what a connection there could be. But the fact that they're continuing to rely on these tarot metaphors seemed an interesting choice to me. Anybody else pick up on that? 
I don't do tarot, so no. You have to explain that to us, Ken. So I played Taboo the Sixth Sense on the 8-bit Nintendo. That's my knowledge of Arcana. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's major and minor Arcana in the tarot cards. Almost like different suits, like clubs and hearts, my understanding of it. I'm sure one of our listeners is cringing at my metaphors, but uh, Arcana is a kind of card in the tarot. Uh, and also, she said, when she saw Picard, she said, Captain Jean-Luc Picard. And that's actually one of the first times in this entire series that anybody has called him Captain as opposed to Admiral. Yeah, someone else did it before, and I don't remember when, but I remember that thinking that too. Like, huh, they called him a different rank. And clearly that was because he was Data's Captain, not Data's Admiral, but I like that they were acknowledging that relationship. Yeah, that was really nice. And as you say, most others have called him Picard or JL or Admiral Picard, but we all know him as Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the USS Enterprise. Um, funny you should mention that, because uh, Sutra call, or, or excuse me, Arcana says Captain Picard. Uh, a moment later, uh, Alton says Admiral Picard. I don't, know if there's, uh, I don't know if there's any importance to that or not. I think perhaps Alton is just more up to date with, I mean, he knows, for example, that the Federation didn't listen to Picard after the attack on Mars, so he knows that he's an admiral, whereas Arcana might just see him through Data's eyes, almost literally. Yeah, it's possible. I don't think there might be importance there. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting theory, because it sort of implies that the um, the synths on this world have been really cut off from the news of Federation, either intentionally or simply because it's not relevant to them. Um, and Alton knows what happened, and that's partly why you know he he escapes that planet with uh, with Maddox. But um, and, and actually, it is later that that um, that's discussed, isn't it? Well, I, I thought it odd that Arcana acted like she had never seen an old person before, the way she mm-hmm. traces Picard's lines when she clearly grew up with Maddox and Brent Spiner present. So. I don't but, understand what that interest is. Yeah, I wondered if that was more to do with recognizing Picard from uh, what elements of data remain within her and having those memories um, sort of changed by meeting him in the flesh and experiencing those lines and, and that sort of childlike wonder that we often saw from, from data. That's how I viewed it too. Like She looked at him as a... Either she saw pictures of him before, or she just sees a very different kind of old man than she's seen already. A man who's experienced so much on a galactic scale uh, compared to most people in this world universe. That's true. Her memory of him is of Captain Picard, and this is her seeing Admiral Picard. And I wonder if her memories are so deeply rooted, just like you know, because the the data positron or, or whatever it is that that they're made out of is more a sort of a background subconscious uh, memory for, for for these synths rather than necessarily a specific memory. You know, they've not necessarily had downloaded a, um, I was it Wikipedia, but a kind of Federation Alcars entry mm-hmm. on on Picard, but they know at Picard just because of, of that that little memory in the background, that, that subconscious or whatever it is the, these synths have um, that links them back to data. Yeah. So at this point, Alton summons them all to a lovely veranda to review what they all know. And this is also when we finally get to meet the final synth of the quadruplets. And the fourth of five. Perhaps, yes. And we see her perform a Vulcan mind meld. 
I, I found that a little unbelievable. I didn't. Um, uh, to me, I was like, I was just like, okay. Then even online, I had forgotten. Some people pointed out that Spock mind melded on the M5 computer in the ultimate computer and with V'ger in the motion picture. And so like, I mean, but for me, I was like, okay, I was just going with it. An Android doing it. Of course, they're not Spock, but Spock did it to Androids or computers. But in both of those examples, there was a Vulcan present. In this case, there were no Vulcans. That's what I'm saying. I was saying, like, I would just went with it. Like in those examples, it was Vulcan doing it, but hey. Have we ever seen a non-Vulcan perform a mind meld before? I see a half Romulan, half Vulcan. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't recall a completely non-Vulcan or completely non-Romulan person performing a mind meld. But that's a really interesting connection with Spock and the M5 and Spock and Vija mind melding. So there is a sort of history for of organics and synths being able to exchange and share thoughts through, through this method. And it is fascinating, to coin, a, <laughs> to coin a phrase, to see an android do it to a human. Um, and it kind of speaks to potentially the adaptability of these synths that they can, if once they are fully aware of who they are and what they can do, they can reorganize themselves, they can reorganize their minds to work in ways that outstrip, you know, uh, organics, uh, organic human, which is what they, what they might be presenting as, but actually they can uh, reorganize themselves to work as Vulcans, you know, through study or through technology. It also reminds me of Amazo from the DC Comics. He's an android who can imitate any superpower that is used against him. So, you know, if Superman uses his uh, heat vision, all of a sudden now Amazo has heat vision. And clearly nobody used a mind meld on this android, but yeah, if she studies anything long enough, apparently she can adapt to their unique qualities and make them her own. They're very advanced androids. That's the answer. Yes, very. I'm not sure if even her creators expected that she would ever be able to do a mind meld. Wow. They're very advanced, yet they still have golden skin and yellow eyes. So, what <laughs> one has to question what what their where where their advances lie? Is it in the internals? Is it in the externals? What's important? What's not? Um, and I wanted to actually call back to thinking about what Noonien Soong, Alden's dad, had done, because he created Juliana Tainer, who was Data's mother, and Noonien Soong's wife i believe or partner for a while and i wondered how that linked in to uh, what we see on capellas because as far as we were aware with juliana tana she effectively presented as a human she she was uh, on a tricorder she read as human and it was only when she had that bad accident on the ground that she was revealed to be an android and even she herself never worked out that she was an android so it sounds like soon created at least one android that was as good as Darjan Soji. But what happened to that research? This is perhaps a bit of a side note, but mm-hmm. I was very uh, interested when I started thinking about that. No, we brought up in the past, like wondering where has she gone? What has, what has happened to her? And we know absolutely nothing. I mean, she has a son out there, and she never writes, she never calls. I mean, that's just negligence. <laughs> ah, but is... is Alden Inigo Soong, the daughter of Noonien Soong and Yoon Alatena, or is it some other 
is it some other partner that uh, is his mum, or is it, or is he a clone as I as I speculated previously? Or maybe he is Lore, and that's why she doesn't call because she doesn't think she has a son because she doesn't. Who knows? I have no son. Um, <laughs> uh, has thing that Josh mentioned the running away. Um, to come back to that. Uh, here we find out in, a, in on this uh, synthville that uh, Agnes. When she's talking to uh, Alton, she says she didn't have the guts to go with Maddox when he left. Or maybe she's talking to Picard. Uh, one of those two. She mentioned yeah. she didn't have the guts. That means she had an option. She stayed behind. I thought that uh-huh. was... I just found that interesting or important that about well, her character. like She had an opportunity to run away with Maddox and she stayed behind. Yeah, that is interesting because... After after he left, she obviously had no opportunity to continue her work in any real way. It was all theoretical, um, and I wonder, I, I, I wonder why she chose not to go with Maddox. Was it because, as you say, she didn't have the guts, or she didn't? Ha- well, actually, she said she didn't have the guts. But what was the what was holding her back? Was it a lack of self belief? Was it connections to Earth? Was it simply fear? Um, and these are kind of the themes that it, sounds, it looks like this character is. Is very much exploring. Well, the way what we know about her from the uh, Picard here, or the show here herself, she said basically she acts like she's never flown at least deep space. Uh, oh, she's yeah. very scared of space travel. Uh, maybe she, you're right, and then you popped in that she has so many connections to Earth, and she's never or barely left Earth in the past. Where that can be pretty daunting. Now, uh, your lover wants to run away halfway across the galaxy on a planet that, that has no accommodations, uh, you know, it's probably a very scary prospect. Yeah, but she's certainly finding her courage because in that scene on the veranda, she allows herself to be mind-melded again, even when the first time put poison in her head. And this time she allows it to proceed. And this is where we find out that the admonition was not a warning. It was an invitation. Or was it? Well, I think it was, even though I, you know, when you make a copy of a copy, things go wrong. And this admonition is coming from the grief planet to Commodore O, to Agnes Gerardi, to the synth. And who knows if she got it right. But yeah, I, I did not see that coming. But it makes sense because I was concerned in a previous episode of this podcast that there was an alien race that had enough power to move eight suns and yet was still wiped out by synthetic life. And now we understand, oh, it was actually all one and the same. The people who are able to wipe out synthetic life, or organic life, I mean, are probably the ones who moved the suns and created that beacon. That makes a lot more sense to me. It was the synths all along. (laughs) (laughs) It was. Oh, gosh. Yeah, and so now there's like this intergalactic beyond space and time synthetic life federation that just wipes out humanity whenever they get summoned that's terrifying it is kind of crazy isn't it when you when you, when you think about it because this like this power this the, this federation of um of synths or, or whomever they are must fear organic so much that they feel that they need to intervene at every moment there's no sense of trying to um, control organics. There's no sense of trying to reason with them. It's simply no. They need to be exterminated. 
And this is a, a really interesting callback, I think, to uh, themes we've seen in Discovery, isn't it? Yep, control oh. all that. Oh. Well, I, I would definitely say that overall, this synthetic community at first seems far less malevolent than control. But that federation that they're now trying to reach out to, yeah, that definitely harkens back to control. And am I right in remembering that um, in Discovery, we had a sphere that was hundreds of thousands of years old, and that also contains very interesting knowledge about artificial intelligence? Yes. Uh, It's just this massive library that they said, oh, just our scientists going to dig through it for a long time. So I wonder whether there is some link there about ancient objects and ancient things actually all linking together. And you have, you know, you have a malevolent AI like, um, like Control trying to get hold of that. But then you also have this sense of, oh, there are other super AIs out there in the background always watching and ready to be called upon um, if their you know, new AI, new synthetic life offspring um, are threatened. I don't know. I just, I just, find, I just find those links really interesting. And no. that also means that they had no interest in the Borg. Borg weren't entirely synthetic, but partially. They were partly synthetic, and they're always striving towards perfection, which I believe they understood to be a completely synthetic life form, right? Yeah. So the Borg never quite got there. And maybe that's why these super AIs are like, well, we'll just wait for them to get there, and then we'll come in and help them rid the galaxy of... Um, of organic life and i know i'm beating a dead horse here but i'm still frustrated that nobody on this show is acknowledging holograms as valid forms of synthetic life just because they don't have a physical body that doctor from voyager was as real as anybody else on that ship in my opinion yeah no argument there uh in real apparently they're just very apparently they have a very fine distinction between the two Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember thinking back when we went to the Quantum Archive and we saw Index, and initially I was like, oh, isn't that a synthetic life form? And actually, no, it's a hologram. So, But they acted like I would expect a synthetic life form to act. Um, It simply has no permanent body. So it is a very fine distinction, isn't it? Well, that's just it. Like That's what I thought too when I saw Index. And when you just said, isn't that a synthetic life? No, it's a hologram. That supposes that those two are mutually exclusive, and to me, they're not. But who knows? Maybe that's going to tie into something. No. Uh, in that scene on the veranda, there was very briefly in the background, very easy to miss, some lightning, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. which suggested not only some tension going on, but also I was wondering where is that lightning? So much lightning that Soji saw in her dream about her childhood, and there it was. So. I thought the community seemed a little too idyllic in terms of weather, but they did throw some lightning in, and that satisfied me. Yeah, it was very subtle. It's very far on the right side. If you if you, you were not looking for it, you did not see it at all. Yeah, I missed it the first time entirely. Um, well, that same scene, there's actually a very subtle moment between the people that is easy to be forgotten unless you're looking for it. The, how, how it goes is Picard, they're doing the diatribe. Hey, this is all everything we've learned. The camera cuts away to Picard sitting at a desk alone. And a mysterious woman walks up to him, and he goes, of course. And we see uh, Sutra for the first time. Next scene immediately cuts to them joining the people, giving a diatribe of what's going on. And Sutra comes up and stands next to Soji. And Sutra touches Soji lightly, 
like a, like a kin kind of would on a shoulder or something. Soji has this very uncomfortable look on her face. Like she is not comfortable with Sutra touching her. And then she walks up, steps away. It was a very quick, subtle moment, but, uh, well, it shows the, towards the, by the end makes it look like Soji is siding with Sutra, but like we all, like very much, I was already at their point saying, no, she's got a plan. And even at this point, they're telling us like, hey, no, Soji does not trust Sutra at all. That's a really interesting observation. The that that moment where they meet in the was it was it at a desk or in a garden? I it can't was, quite it was, remember. Uh, they're underneath the the futuristic uh, umbrellas in the sunlight on their chairs. Yeah, um, and then it, then there's just a cut, so you don't quite know what they discuss. But later, it's revealed that uh, Picard has told Sutra uh, what's happened, and that little touch to uh, to Soji is something that I missed actually, um, and I wonder whether that speaks to some kind of information transfer, some kind of ability to control, or maybe it is simply uh, a, a kind of sisterly touch. For me, what I thought it was, was that Soji did not expect to see her own face looking back at her. And it's not an identical face like her own twin sister's was. It's this very different one. It, it, it hits that uncanny valley where, yeah, that's my face, but it has bronze skin and green eyes. And this is unexpected and unnatural not all her memories have come back to her yet and she just wasn't expecting this and if that happened to me i would be a little weirded out too for sure especially seeing i suppose almost like a precursor to yourself Mm -hmm. um yeah she's she's seeing she's seeing someone who presumably has the same uh processing abilities but actually is physically clearly in my opinion a, a a precursor to to her and her kind of more perfection towards um, uh, mimicking synthetic life, uh, organic life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, it, you know, uh, Sutra talks about the admonition poisoning the Romulan's minds. And one could argue that it has now poisoned her mind such that she wants to destroy all of humanity. But she seemed a little suspicious to me even before she had that information. I I wouldn't quite have trusted her in the first place anyway. Oh, for sure. And then like, we even talked about Narek's captivity. Like she goes in there, she's going to try to kill him. And she's like, to mention, like, I don't have to kill you or to y- use you first. And then she discovers when she gets there, like, I'm just going to use you until, I, until you're no longer necessary. Like, this is a very lore-like thing. But also, um, she uses, she uses Narek escaping as a way to get the other synths on her side. They murder, um, uh, Arcana and then use that as a way to get the people, get, get the, the synths on their side immediately after that. Like, she is devious and she is not trustworthy. And I think Soji is just going along with this until an opportunity arises to get free Picard. I completely agree about Soji's intentions. One thing about Sutra, though, is that she has been studying the works of the great Vulcan masters. Whatever happened to the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. She's willing to wipe out humanity to save her own little community. That's very un-Vulcan. So mm-hmm. she's very selective in which philosophy she chooses to practice. Uh, or, or just has a very uh, different uh, take on it. Yeah, clearly. So it's interesting. You have to wonder where does she where does she get this from? Because presumably all these synths are born with this same innocence, same innocence we saw in Arcana. But uh, she Sutra is 
a very different synth like how how has this personality developed you know is there do they have some kind of randomizer when they're created <laughs> um or is it what they what they're what they read what they're exposed to i guess it's that nature versus nurture although in this case it's not nature at all is it it's um mm-hmm. <laughs> in nature i'm trying to think of the opposite it's, word it's true i know what you mean so um it's kind it's 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 really it's exciting, I think, actually, to see this counterpoint. This counterpoint that looks like uh, Soji um, acting in a way that is not very Soji. Yeah, and in fact, Sutra allows Narek to escape after killing Arcana, and we see Narek escaping to the Borg Cube, which means that we're going to see the Borg Cube again next week, and probably Seven and Elnor again as well. Does anybody have any suspicions about? what Narek intends to do at the Borg Cube? I have no idea what he wants to do there. Unless there's some uh, deus ex machina or something that we were not privy to that he forgot and he has to go get. Like, I have no I have no idea why he would want to go there unless there's something that we're not aware of or was very subtly mentioned in the past uh, to help him out. I mean, the only reason I can think for him to go there is there's nowhere else to go. And so maybe he's trying to cobble together some sort of an escape or something. Do you have yeah. any theories, Josh? I think that's probably the best working theory as it is, you know, if you get to the Borg cube where things, where even though it may not fly again, things seem to be intact. You know, we saw uh, we saw Soji's quarters mostly intact. We saw her pictures mostly intact. Um, so maybe he has something stashed away in his quarters that he can use a, a beacon, a communications device. We know that they have working long-range sensors, so perhaps he, can, he feels he can assist uh, in the Romulan uh, bombardment uh, or maybe he feels he can contact them to get him to get them to beam him, beam him out later. The only thing that I'm suspicious of, and it doesn't necessarily involve Narek, is when Seven said she was the Borg Queen, she said that she could sense the La Serena and the Romulan scout ship in the transwarp conduit. And that's why she came to the planet. If she could sense them in the transwarp conduit, then chances are so could the rest of the Borg. And I don't think they're going to start showing up but that is the sort of concern I would have is that if I'm going to use a transwarp conduit, chances are the people who own this are probably going to know that I'm trespassing. It's like we joked last week where like, the Borg Queen notification, you've logged in in a different location. Uh, right. <laughs> that, yeah. was, that was a really funny thought when I, when I heard you say that last week. Um, I, really, I really loved that line. <laughs> Does anybody suspect that Narek is going to somehow end up being a good guy? That he's going to be so in love with the synth that he will do something to stop the Romulan attack? Maybe an evil version of a good guy? I mean, good guys sometimes do good things, or bad bad people sometimes do good things for bad reasons. I don't know. I, I don't think so. I, I think I think he is a bad guy through and through. I think he has um, provided that he's used his charm to to get get involved uh, with Soji, um, and now she has served a purpose. Um, I think he, I, I don't think he can trust in any way, shape, or form. Um, I, I would, I suppose, in one sense, the story of redemption will be quite Star Trek, but this is not necessarily Star Trek as we have seen it in the past. So I wouldn't be surprised if um, he continues. Um, doing bad things and maybe eventually pays for it. Or maybe he doesn't. Maybe he goes off and retires somewhere. 
But in the sense that most Star Treks have not been serial in nature, we don't often have recurring villains that show up as often as Narek does. I mean, maybe Gul Dukat is the last time we knew a villain as well as we do Narek. And I guess he was irredeemable too in the end, Gul Dukat, but I don't know. I feel like if you want to have a bad guy who is irredeemable, that would be Commodore O or Narissa, who we apparently didn't see in this episode, which is very suspicious. Mm-hmm. No. I, I mean, where is she? You said you thought you saw her beaming out uh, before. Right. I forgot which to go back why, and watch. And yet, I would expect, therefore, to see her on Commodore O's ship. And if she didn't beam out, I would have expected to see her on the board cube. But we didn't really see her in either this time. Yeah, we barely saw the board cube either, so... Yep. Yeah, that was interesting, oh, because and- I think... I think I thought she was being assimilated in that moment in her last scene. That's what, that's what the panic on her face looked like. Mm. But we've seen her beam out at the last second before, like right when somebody is throwing a knife at her and she beams out at the last second. It seems like she would certainly beam out when presented with another threat as well. Yeah, I mean, that's plausible, very plausible. Yeah. So I have a few more questions about the episode as a whole, but there are there any other specific scenes that you want to talk oh, about? Oh gosh, I didn't you know, honestly when I watched this episode, I was like, God, I'm really kinda of meh on this. You even said so on Twitter. Now that watching a second time and talking about it, like, no, I still have more. I still have more notes. Um there was a moment where I'll be trying to be quick because we're getting long along. Uh Jirati is talking to Soong and um he want basically he's trying like you should come help me out and they're having a little conversation and she pulls back the he pulls back this blanket on this android he's working on and she's like you made a golem and they talk about Alton wanting to do a mind or a, working on mind transfers and it's like with the context of what Sutra was talking about later Alton sounds like he's trying to put his body or mind into um, synthetic life form uh, which would mean he's not data lore but also so which breaks that hypothesis but uh found it interesting he's trying to put his mind into an android body and then that makes me think of singularity oh that was singularity singularity is this concept where everyone just puts their mind into some huge consciousness like digital consciousness and everyone's just one basically like the borg you're all one big thing one big mind yeah that was a really interesting scene wasn't it when he when when pulled back that that uh, blanket uh, and I, I, I did assume it was to do with him and his age and him dying, but we also know there's someone else that's dying in Picard. Oh God, I didn't even think of it that way. And oh yeah, that that was my big question in my notes was who is going to end up in the Golem? I mean, if if Picard is dying, but we know he's coming back for season two, there must be a cure of some form. Didn't even occur to me. Oh man. Yeah, yeah I was just focusing on Alton. No, but but that presents other issues because if we have an old actor being put into an immortal body, what's he going to look like in season two? Maybe it's a temporary thing. Or, or he maybe goes they off recast the, the role. Or he goes off with the Space uh, the space Federation of Synths. What, Picard in the Golem body? I mean, just throwing things out there. Unknown. Or the ending of that season. But I'm just throwing things out there, but with nothing behind them. You know, I did a poll on our Twitter account to ask, what do you think is the resolution of the first season? And I presented four options, because that's the most Twitter lets you vote on. Uh, Jat Vash is disbanded, synths are annihilated, data is resurrected, or everyone is assimilated. (laughs) And the votes were 
one person voted for everyone is assimilated. One person, that being me, voted for since are annihilated. Three people voted for Jat Bosch is disbanded, and eight people voted Data is resurrected. And that, you know, we have an actor who looks like Data, and we have a blank body. And you know what? There's precedent for Patrick Stewart, his character dying and being resurrected in another body. It happened to Professor X in the movies. <laughs> so, you know, he, he clearly has experience with mind transfer. He's the one most qualified to do it again. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I missed that poll, sadly. <laughs> How would you have voted? Uh, I don't. I wish I would have had a fifth option, like none of the above. Well, I've tried to fit a fifth option, but four it's is only the most. Fifth, yeah, and you can always reply to it and say this poll is biased. I don't agree. <laughs> that, that probably would have been me had I been on Twitter. <laughs> oh, you wouldn't have voted for any of the four options? Uh, yeah, I. I think it's difficult. I, I I don't see data being resurrected. I I don't I don't see there being much appetite from that from uh, Brent Spiner or from from kind of you know a story perspective really. Um, everyone being assimilated could be interesting though. Maybe <laughs> may, maybe that that's the that's the big reset at the end of the of the season. Everyone, everyone gets assimilated, and then they're all exporg and they're all part synth, and they will have to work through that. Or maybe maybe they somehow transfer Hugh into the golem and he comes back. I mean, he's he's been a robot before. Why not again? There's one more scene that I, I thought was really cute. Actually, was um, Spot Two. I really loved I was just it. Yeah. Say I love seeing Spot Two. Uh, big cat fan, as I think I mentioned before. And it was so lovely to see a, a beautiful ginger cat um, acting as Spot Two. Um, and, <laughs> and to hear that it was uh, a synthetic cat, of course. Did anybody else guess the cat's name before they said it? I just went, Spot! is what I yelled out. I was like, oh, Spot 2! There's also a quick scene where Narek is talking to uh, Sutra, and she's like, what do the Romulans do with their prisoners? He's like, let's change the subject. Uh, That was great. He was talking to Arcana at that point. Arcana, Arcana. And there's also a moment where Rafi is given an object told, here, this will repair your ship. It fixes things. Just use your imagination. Which I thought was great. Uh, Almost like a Green Lantern ring. It's like very Doctor Who to me. (laughs) Oh, but you know, there was one actually uh, rather significant scene that I want us to discuss, which was Raffi and Picard had a really tender moment where Mm -hmm. she says, you know, thank you for everything you've done for me. And I love you. And I don't think she meant to say it. It just came out. And then she realizes what an awkward situation she's created because Picard's face falls. He's like, oh, no, I'm in that situation where I have to express emotions. And we, she, he just talked about that a week or two ago with Soji. And I thought I knew where the scene was going. And they started to walk away. And I thought the dialogue was over. And then he just turns around and he blurts it out. I love you too, Rafi. I did not see that coming. And I welled up because... Oh, it must have been so hard for him to say that, and I'm sure he's glad he did. I didn't see him saying that either. Yeah, it was. It came as a surprise to me, and uh, but it was also really lovely. It was just the right thing for him to say, I think, when you reflect back on that moment, because they again, those two have been through so much together. Um, I, I'd love to learn more about their history. Um, and I have just downloaded the audiobook of uh, The Last Best Hope, the um, Picard tie-in book. So I wonder I, if she's going to be in there and I'll learn a, bit, a little bit more about their history. 
Uh, I didn't know about this. The last best hope is a, the greatest speeches of Ronald Reagan. That's not what you're talking about. <laughs> I don't think it is. No, it's a it is a tie-in uh, book. Um, there's an ebook, a, a print copy, an audio book, um, and it is written by someone who's who I only remember as Una, and she has also written the autobiography of Captain Janeway, um, and she's also done some Deep Space Nine tie-in work yeah um una, una mccormack una mccormack that's it um and i think this is like an official tie-in that tells you the kind of pre pre-story of what what happened between um the uh mars attacks and uh, and now yeah she's written a, as you said a bunch of ds9 novels but also some discovery novels and uh this book comes uh, came out february 11th so just about five weeks ago Oh, I didn't realize they were doing Picard tie-in novels already, and that's really exciting because we're all quarantined and we have nothing else to do. Absolutely. <laughs> Yay, so I'm going to add this to my read list. Thank you so much, Josh. No problem. I don't know I don't know how that slipped by my radar. So excited. But yeah, is... so I, I, going back to that moment, I think I, I would love to love to know everything that's gone on, everything that he's done for her, everything they've been through together. And also just to understand a bit more about how they love each other. So I, 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 I read it as a kind of uh, deep, friendly love. But I wonder what level of romantic love there may there may be, if any. None, none whatsoever. That would just ruin it, in my opinion. <laughs> romantic didn't occur to me at all. Nope, no, nope, don't even go there. Yeah, I, it didn't occur to me either. But I, I thought I would bring it up to see what your thoughts were. Because if you bring up the theory that the son she went to visit on Free Cloud is actually Picard's, no, just just stop. Ooh, stop. No, no, <laughs> no. This All is right. not why I brought it up, Josh. I'll, I'll jump ahead then. Uh, another scene. Thank you. The, there's a scene towards the end where Soji is talking to Picard about the logic of sacrifice. Uh, I don't have much to say on this moment, but she's sort of trying to figure out like, like what if it's ever right to kill for a reason, like or whatnot. And Picard is basically like, well kind of depends on who's holding the knife if it's right or wrong that can be read a couple of different ways the way that she is pretending to side with sutra suggests that the sacrifice she was talking about was all of humanity i think what we're going to see in the next episode is soji following in her father's footsteps i don't think she's going to survive this season yeah i see i didn't even think of it as being a thing about humanity i was thinking as in this moment and between Narek or sutra or whatever but humanity, it didn't occur to me. Yeah, because that scene occurs just before Narek kills um, Arcana, and after he does, is when Soji says, "I should have killed him. I wanted to kill him. Why didn't I kill him?" And that is a form of sacrifice, giving up some of your own principles for the greater good. Which you know, Data did almost in that one episode, uh, the most toys. I think was the name of the episode. Yeah. But. Yeah, I don't know what Soji is capable of. I don't know what she's going to decide, but I know that she will be key to saving humanity. I think you're. I think you're right. I think for me, I read that as a callback to what Data did in Nemesis, because he sacrificed himself to save Picard and the Enterprise and his crewmates. Um, and I think that is the direction that Soji will go. I think she will have to self-sacrifice in order to to resolve what's going what's coming next. To potentially Steve, oh yeah, yeah, go for it. Mine's different. I I just hope that some element of this community survives. I hope that we don't see 
genocide, even if it is in order to save all of humanity, because that would be just so shameful and such a waste. Mm -hmm. I feel like we can't have this hope of resurrecting some aspect of data, even if it's just a neuron, only to have it all lost by the end of the season. So I suspect that what may happen is, spoiler, kind of like what happened to Buffy, where she will be willing to commit, uh, she'll be willing to sacrifice herself, but somehow in the end she'll be brought back. So maybe Soji, she will make that leap. She will go to do something that she can't come back from, and somebody else will save her. Kind of like Picard, he was the one who was going to sacrifice himself on the scimitar to save everybody. And then Data showed up and saved her. So maybe, I mean, if anybody needs redemption besides Narek, it's Agnes. So maybe Soji will try to save all of humanity and Agnes will step in in the last moment and say, no, I owe you all one. Just like Alton said, it's her chance to give a life instead of take one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is a very compelling theory. I'd be very interested to see how that pans out. And we won't need to wait long. Sabriel, you got a few more scenes? Yeah, yeah, real quick. Uh, uh, to stave off potential emails or tweets, I think... Um... I wrote this in my, I wrote in my notes, Sutra helps murder Saga to help convince the other. I don't think it was um, Arcana who was murdered. I think it was Saga, uh, which is another one of the twins. Um, I honestly don't remember what was said right now, but I wrote Saga in my notes with capitals. And so that might be important um, as one of the Arcana and Saga, I think. Oops. And then also, um, Sutra has a really cold lines of Picard says, I will rescue those I can rescue. Uh, I thought that was um, like, oof, ouch. Yeah, because when the Romulan rescue effort was disbanded, he chose not to save anybody. It was all or nothing for him. Yeah. And then um, we skipped ahead, but back on the board cube when the, our crew gets there, um, Seven's on there. Again, we hear the uh, Voyager music as she's introduced. And then um, I found it fascinating that they brought this back. I don't know if it was Jerry Ryan or intentional, but she, this is the first time we saw her stand the same way Seven of Nine did back in Voyager with her hands tucked behind her back, like obviously at attention in this very Seven way. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. (laughs) It was just a very subtle thing. Yeah, I noticed that pose and that it was distinct from anything else we'd seen so far in this season. I didn't put two and two together that, yeah, that's what Seven of Nine does. Nice catch. Those are my notes. Cool. Josh, anything else stick out at you this episode? Uh, there Again, there was so much, but I, I think you've covered a great deal of it. Um, so that's it for me. <laughs> yeah. So, Sabriel, every Thursday morning, like before you even get out of bre- bed and brush your teeth, you watch this show and you tweet your thoughts about it. And that was the first thing I saw this week was, oh, this episode is the weakest of the season. I guess I shouldn't have high expectations. And when I first watched it, I was kind of disappointed that after all this time, the sins they're trying to save ends up being the threat. But after I watched it a second time, I'm still a little disappointed that they're going that direction, but I liked it more the second time I watched it. Maybe because we had the expectations up there or put on a pedestal or like whatever, but no, this is much more of a had to sit there and think about it kind of episode and so no, i appreciate it more maybe the original hypothesis of watching the two together is better for a uh quick action experience but maybe it's just weird because the show has not slowed down for a while so when we had a slower one it was off-putting 
I don't know. I'm throwing things out there. See what sticks. Yeah, you mentioned something similar when we watched the end of season two of Discovery, where it was a two-parter. And one, the first one was very dialogue heavy, and the second one was very action heavy. And either one by itself felt a little uneven. The two together was much more cohesive. And again, we're ending the season with a two-parter with Picard. We didn't get any previews this week of next week's episode. Oh, I did. So maybe you really do need to watch them together. What's that? There was a preview after on when I watched it on Amazon. Oh, I watched it on CBS. I have the version without ads. I watched it all the way through to the credits. And there was no preview. Oh, I have Amazon, no no ads, and it's the CBS channel on Amazon. Yeah, there was a preview for next season or episode. Interesting. That is that is interesting. Yeah, in the, in the UK, we get it on the Amazon Prime. Uh, it's just Amazon Prime. There's no CBS channel. So I didn't get a preview. Well, if you want hints, um, <laughs> no, <laughs> I will not but, say anything. No, I, I, I guess Sabriel has more foresight into what's coming than either of us do, Josh. And to be honest, and I'm okay it did not reflect that. anything that I said today, to be honest. <laughs> no, I, I didn't think you would do that to us. No, no, I even then. I, I'm just saying, like, honestly, nothing I've discussed today made anything in the preview make much more sense at all. <laughs> or vice versa. We're all as lost and confused as we were when we started this podcast an hour ago. <laughs> Unsurprising. So, well, then, I guess that wraps up this episode of Picard. We have one more episode to go this season. And, th- of course, that means at least one more transporter lock. I'm sure we'll continue broadcasting after that because we have more discovery coming soonish. And besides, we're all quarantined. What else are we going to do except podcast with each other? Uh, Josh, thank you so much for coming on the show. We've been chatting about Picard in our company Slack for ages. It's been great to chat with you in this other medium for once. It has been my absolute pleasure and honor to join you today. (laughs) Thank you, Ambassador Josh. Sabriel, in that case, why don't you send us off? Engage. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at TransporterLock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at TransporterLock.com. <laughs>